You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. got a comment on the side that said, would you please tell us again what each author read, which uh, connects with what I wanted to ask you first, which is how did you choose from all of the amazing works you could have chosen from, how did you choose uh, what you decided to read? So if you want to tell the name of the piece again and, and then why you chose it, um, we, can, we can go in the reverse order this time, Justina, if you want to start. So I chose All Summer in a Day, and I chose it because it was the first Ray Bradbury story I'd ever read. Um, we read that in fifth grade as part of our school curriculum. Um, and I remember really, really loving it because it, it was the first time I'd read a story in school about kids that felt real, that felt authentic. Um, one of my things, favorite things about Bradbury is he doesn't write down to children. He writes children as messy and complex and terrible as they are um, because they're just smaller human beings. And so I really, really like it. And I really like that story still. And I still, the ending even now gives me chills whenever I read it. Bravo. Michael. You're muted, Mike. There. I chose um, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which I think is one of uh, Bradbury's greatest works. But I chose that chapter because when I read it as a child, I identified with Will. I knew that I was going to be hurt and baffled all my life. And indeed, this has pretty much turned out that way. Uh, but then as an adult, when I read it, I identified with the father because I've turned into a protector now. And I met Bradbury once. Well, sort of met him. I stood in a line and I got his autograph on, on paperback of this book. And I told him that, and he sort of like nodded. And I think he was a little tired of having people come up to the front of the church and testify. <laughs> Damn. Um, I chose the lake because I was really torn. Um, I was torn between the lake and another great story called The Foghorn, uh, which that story Ray Bradbury often had me read to him late at night after he'd had his stroke and he was infirmed and not well. And that story is marvelous, but I chose the lake because um, somebody said, uh, um, Regina, who's joining us tonight in the chat, uh, Regina had, had correctly stated that Bradbury cited the lake as the first great story he ever wrote. He wrote it in 1942. He was only 22 years old. He had a good friend named Grant Beach, who he dedicated his first book to uh, in 1947, Dark Carnival. Dark Carnival later became uh, the October Country. Um, and he, he wrote The Lake uh, in the backyard of his best, his best friend's backyard on a typewriter in two hours. And he felt, he just, after he was done... At, at, writing for two hours time he found himself crying and he, he tears were, were going down the bridge of his nose and he said why am I crying and he realized right then and there that at long last throughout his childhood and his teen years and writing and writing and writing he had finally written something 
very good. He had finally discovered his voice. He had discovered who he was as a writer. So I think the primordial stirrings of who Ray Bradbury would become are intrinsic in that story, The Lake. The poetry of the language, the melancholy. Of course, autumn is, is sown throughout that very short story. And it's a ghost story. Um, you know, and as Justina said, it's about children, but yet it captures beautifully, Justina, you said that so perfectly, the complexity of childhood. Um, it's the saddest ghost story I think you'll ever read. It, it, it's just remarkable. And really, he called it the first good story he ever wrote. So I, is it me now? It's me now, right? Okay, I, I, I lost track. Okay. Um, <laughs> I might have skipped in front of you, David. I'm no, sorry. I don't think no, you did. I don't think you, you did. You I'm, just, right. I'm just confused. And it doesn't matter uh, a whole lot. Okay. <laughs> so I chose this story called The Exchange, which was an early story of, of Bradbury's, although it was not published until later, much later. Um, I'll, I'll be upfront and say it's far from his best story. It's far from my favorite story of his. Um, one doesn't have to look very hard with a fine-tooth comb to find autobiographical elements in Bradbury's stories. They're all over. Um, but this one, I think, in its most sort of direct and vulnerable is just kind of Ray Bradbury on a plate. Um, <laughs> he, you know, the, the way he writes about what libraries meant to him and, and the role that they played. And as a librarian, I mean, the story is really a, a, a love letter to librarians, not his only one that he ever did, but, um, but one of his most direct and unabashed. And so we love it. And we know that kid, we know Ray Bradbury, we know that person who never left the library and grew up there and comes back maybe years later um, which is one of the most remarkable experiences librarians ever get to have when an adult walks in and turns out to have been a child that you uh, gave books to. Um, so that's why I chose it. At the very last minute, because I knew it was running long, I just kind of cut it on the fly a paragraph, which then when Sam started reading his story, I realized was a reference to the same thing in Sam's story. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and reclaim my paragraph because it so perfectly <laughs> captures that moment. It's when he's, when the, he's looking at the different books of the, of the children that he knew in childhood. And one of them says, and then there was the far ghost with a snow maiden face whose hair was a long golden harp played by the summer airs she who was always sailing to Byzantium, where emperors were drowsed by golden birds that sang in clockwork cages at sunset and dawn. She who always skirted the outer rim of school and went to swim in the deep lake 10,000 afternoons ago and never came out, so was never found. But suddenly now she made landfall here in the green shaded light and opened Yates to at last sail home from Byzantium. That also is a little bit that child in um, that devastating story that Justina read, um, locked away in her closet. Wow, that was a gorgeous paragraph too. Uh, before I ask the next question, I should uh, remind people that if you want, you can ask questions in the Q&A uh, if you're on, uh, if you're on the webinar and if you are on Facebook or somewhere else, I think you have ways of asking as well and they'll, they'll convey those questions to us. Um, in the meantime, I'll keep asking questions. Uh, 
And some of you may have answered this with the thing that you just read, but uh, I'm curious what your entry points into Bradbury's work were. Um, I can call on people or you can, we, we can try one where I don't call on people specifically and see what happens. Well, I'll make a confession here. I literally cannot remember. And since I can remember my first encounters with readers, with writers, at least back to age 12, um, it must have been much earlier. Bradbury's been a part of my life since I don't know when. And you know, um, Bradbury claimed that he could remember being born. And most people doubt this. But I can remember being less than a month old. So I just think he's just a little better than me at memory. That's just off to the side, but I, uh, I think it's true. Uh, you're you're muted, Sam. Sam. If I may piggyback off that, Michael, that was very aptly said. When I first met Ray Bradbury, he told me his birth story and I was like everyone else skeptical. And after all of our years together, I left completely convinced that he did indeed remember being born. Uh, and you stated it perfectly. I mean, I think he, he used a part of his brain that most people probably don't, creatively and imaginatively, and, and he was a genius. Um, and I think I do, I'm convinced, and his mom, even his mother, his own mother was convinced that he remembered his birth. Um, and to that end, I selected my, my, um, my entry point, as, as Sarah asked, to Bradbury, um, was also weirdly in utero. My dad read The Illustrated Man to my mom when she was eight months pregnant with me. Um, and it's kind of an odd book to read because it's frightening. Um, it, it's a weird book to read to a pregnant woman, but I listened in utero, obviously, because I... I like the rest of everybody here tonight, fell in love with his, his words and his ideas and just the poetry of his heart. Um, and then 30 some years later became his biographer, which is just stunning. And I think he thought that in and of itself sounded like a Bradbury story. So I discovered him in the womb. Uh, the first story I read for myself was, was, uh, only the second Venus, the only, he only wrote two Venus stories. So Justina read All Summer in a Day, which is, he told me the story he, get, he, would, he was asked most often about. Because school children all read that story and they all loved it. And they all saw the bullying nature of children, the complexity of children. But he wrote another Venus story that was kind of Jack London on Venus. A survival story, a man versus nature story called The Long Rains. And I read that when I was 11 and just was enraptured by it. Uh, and that's, that ignited me for the rest of my life. And it, it will never stop. I hope that, you know, when I die, people will toss Bradbury books into my casket so I can read them off into eternity. Yeah, I think like many people, I have a hard time remembering the exact moment too. As a kid whose favorite holiday was Halloween by like a mile and um, who loved old-time radio drama, so I'm sure I heard some there, um, was a fan of the Twilight Zone and all those things, I'm sure I caught some there, um, but I do specifically remember, actually, it's interesting, you're mentioning The Long Rain and All Summer in a Day. As a kid growing up in Seattle, 
where, you know, come March and April, and it's, you know, you start to, you know, feel as you wait for summer to arrive, typically on July 5th, um, as it did then, now it seems to arrive earlier, but um, I remember the resonance of that. I remember sitting in my branch library, which was not a Carnegie library, and I remember hearing the pouring rain and the, the, the resonance of, of that part of those stories. Yeah. Um, I mentioned the first time I read Bradbury was in fifth grade. Um, and the reason, one of the other reasons the story stuck with me is, um, unlike David, I grew up in California where there is no rain. Um, and so like the idea that there would be a place where it would rain, you know, nonstop to me was really fascinating. In fact, in fact, even now in Maryland, when we have like a week of straight rain, I'm like, what is happening? I'm like I'm stuck on Venus. Um, but I will say like being introduced to an author and appreciating author are two different things. I don't think I really appreciated Bradbury until I was in seventh grade. I picked up the Martian Chronicles because um, that was the first time I had read any kind of science fiction where the future was kind of just as terrible as the present day. And for me, that was like kind of a relief. Um, well, the other story I was going to you know, read, but I didn't, um, which is sometimes hard to find depending on the collection you pick up, is way up in the middle of the air, which is literally about Black people leaving Earth to get away from racism. They're literally going to Mars to escape racism. And that the, the original Martian Chronicles collection I read had that story in there. And so to read all these stories of these like spacemen going to like, you know, um, colonize Mars and like, and like see what's, what's out there and like, you know, all this like back and forth. And then to read that story in the middle of it where there are black people who are like leaving because they're sick of racism and in, maybe on Mars they can have a better life. That for me was the first time I realized what science fiction could do for us as readers, where it can give us that that way to look at the future, that way to say, hey, look, things suck, but there's a way to make it better. There's decisions that we can do to make, make life better. That story also was not mediated by a white man. There was like no white narrator getting between you and the people. So he was seeing it from their perspective. Yeah, I mean, like it's told from time. yeah, I mean, like it's told from the perspective of like the racist white dude, and like he doesn't like it's. I mean, I think now if people go read it, they're going to be like, what? I mean, and that's very. I think that's what we don't get. We don't. There's no sympathetic white characters in that story. They're all terrible. Even like the wives who are like, you can't leave because who's going to do my laundry because the black <laughs> ladies are leaving. So like that's one of the things I really appreciated is the honesty that was in that story. If you think about it, if you think about it, Ray Bradbury was writing a Black Lives Matter story at the end of the 1940s. That's what science fiction can do. You're so right. It's incredible. Um, that actually leads well into my next question, which is, uh, there, there's a lot of talk about canon lately mm. uh, in, in science fiction and fantasy, and uh, Bradbury tends to escape relatively unscathed from those conversations compared to his peers. Uh, so, so the question, I guess, is... Uh, what, what do you think is his relevance to today's writers and readers? We've gotten some of that already. And, and what is his legacy today? Yeah, I think, um, I think Bradbury, <laughs> I think Bradbury escapes unscathed because the bar is pretty low. Not to like, like kind of like, you know, step on Bradbury. I mean, but like when you have like people like H.P. Lovecraft, right? Like when that's, you know, and like Joseph Campbell, like when you have those people who are like, you know, big on eugenics and big on like white supremacy and you know even if you analyze um some fantasy like Tolkien like you can see like there's like all like pro-imperialism it's like that like I think it's like it's really hard to get a writer who comes through that unscathed and I think the reason Bradbury comes through 
pretty okay is because he's he's just talking about human beings, right? He's obviously like looking at humans and how humans react. And even when humans are put in fantastical situation, he understands that at their heart, they're still people. And I think that's the, that's the key. That's always been the key to writing, you know, people who feel believable is just to write them as people, you know, they're flawed, you know, they're a little messy, you know, they might be good, that goodness has always come through. And I think that's why Bradbury's writing stands up is because he doesn't have, he doesn't necessarily have an ulterior motive except to just show you a picture of the world around us. He had a, he had a good heart and his instincts were good. He was always on the side of the girl in the closet. He was never on the side of the bullies. And I think that comes through in, in all of his work, all his best work at least. I'll tell you, I recently uh, reread for the first time in I think a couple of decades, uh, Fahrenheit 451, in anticipation of this uh, readathon that's happening on Saturday, uh, which I'm reading a couple of sections of. And uh, there are some interesting places there, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> where he is, uh, well, where, where one of his characters, and of course, I have to be careful not to, not to uh, uh, make that mistake, but is uh, talking about what today we might be referring to as cancel culture. Um, there, there, and uh, he's got some really, you know, interesting prescient things, but there are also some things that sort of make you sit up and take notice and go, hmm, okay. Um, and I'm, I, w I was very relieved because this, the section, we're all reading these little 10 minute sections, and the section I'm reading stops right before he makes yeah. his reference to Little Black Sambo and how uh, the part, part of the reason things have gone to hell is people wanna, wanna ban that book. It's an interesting sort of package and I think he's created almost sort of a firewall around himself by putting things like that in a book like Fahrenheit 451, where any liberal-minded reader is going to really have pause about critiquing a book that's all about don't critique this book. But I, I, I do think it'll be interesting. I, I'm interested to see how that plays. <laughs> wow. I'm trying to be a mostly... Uh mostly ask questions rather than participatory. Participate, uh, please. Like, yeah, I can't resist it, but I want to <laughs> I want to say also um, his prose, if you compare his prose to, um, you know, the other people that you put in that ABC, you know, right. the, you know, you, it ends up being Asimov, Bradbury, Clark, Heinlein, you, you throw those names in there, but, but um, I would put him more in the, uh, Bradbury and Sturgeon, in in the category of writers who could write and and i think part of why we can read them still right now uh is also that that you know the, those stories you all read are are, are just beautiful like there, there's we're, people were picking out passages on the side and and as you said the emotions and like he writes children as if they're as if they're people and he he uh, and i i think i think when you compare that to like Asimov, who no offense to any of the Asimov fans, could not like write a woman to save his life, you know, or or Clark, yes. who never like like I've never connected with like humans in Clark at all, um, and, and we'll leave Heinlein off for now entirely. <laughs> um, but 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 like Bradbury and Sturgeon, I can read because there's this humanity in their work um, that I think comes through above all, and they're you know they're, it's not that they're unproblematic. Um, through and through but it's yeah. that that you can tell that they're that they're striving for something um 
that, that sort of transcended the pulps even when they were published in the pulps. Yeah, humanity and vulnerability too, that he's one of the most vulnerable writers, uh, you know, I've ever read really. And, you know. yeah. This is a yeah. marvelous discussion, you know, and I think um, one of the arguments against Bradbury over the years has been stories are written from a male point of view and that if there is any sort of chink in the armor of his literary canon as it were um it could be his portrayal of women uh, there's a maligning uh there's a lot of marital discord uh, even if we look at the martian chronicles and a story like illa um we look at the the couple in the veldt from the illustrated man i mean there are there uh, there's an argument can be made if we look at uh, the, through the prism of feminist criticism that Bradbury's female characters might be somewhat flat to the page. But then I think you come around with Clarice McClellan from Fahrenheit 451 or uh, um, Helen Loomis from Dandelion Wine and, and a number of other female characters who are absolutely incredible, uh, dimensionalized and empowered women. Um, so I think he sort of saves himself from that. This idea of will cancel culture um, uh, protrude upon the legacy of Bradbury, I think is a really fascinating question. I don't know whether you all saw the thing on Flannery O'Connor in the New Yorker a month and a half mm -hmm. ago. I mean, Flannery O'Connor was going through a, a sort of renaissance of rediscovery and now we're finding all of her letters are, are just littered with um, you know, racial slurs and, and, and bad things. And I, I think that this is, we're going to discover a lot of things about a lot of people. Um, the reckoning is coming, coming to literature and to art and how we handle it. I mean, I, I, Michael Jackson was on the radio the other night and I turned it up and I thought, God, I'm turning up something. I, I questioned my own twisting of the volume knob because I love the music of Michael Jackson, but then we look at his legacy and the accusations so I, I think we're living through a fascinating time and a really important time. It's really damned important what we're going through right now. We're, we're experiencing massive cultural growing pains, but it's a good thing. It's a, it's a great thing. It, it sucks that we're, we're having to suffer as much as we are to, to reevaluate ourselves and look at things. And Bradbury might face some of that. He, he may, you know, but I think it's, this is a good thing for us as a society, that we're reevaluating our artists and our creators. Well, I have to say there are a lot of, um, there are a bunch of Asimov centennial things happening this year too. And, and um, I don't know if I would have jumped oh, as fast to be on that one. I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the, the things we have to remember when we're looking at the lifespan of a creator's work is that it's, it's a lifespan of a creator's work. Like, I think even Flannery O'Connor, like I'm not sure who was surprised that Flannery O'Connor used racial slurs in her personal right. letters. Right. I mean, because like, if you read her stories, you, you very much understand, like she was a woman of the South. She was, you know, she was born and raised in Savannah. Like, and like, like, I, like, I think sometimes we get people discover things and it's really exciting for them. Um, to discover things, but it doesn't necessarily change that author's writings anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you read Flannery Connor and you're like, she was racist, and you're like, yeah, I can, I can see that. Like, it's still, it's still a story that's talking about race. Now, 
would I recommend Flannery O'Connor over like an Alice Walker or a, you know, like probably not, but like those are two different kinds of stories, right? I would put Flannery O'Connor squarely in the same uh, category as Harper Lee. But again, those aren't gonna be the first stories I recommend to, to people, for people to read about racism, to learn about racism anyway. And I think even with Bradbury, that's what we have to remember is like, we compare him like, yeah, he didn't do a great job with women, but who did? Like, like, like all those other golden age sci-fi dudes kind of suck when it comes to writing women, right? Um, and they kind of suck on a whole lot more in other ways. And so I think that's kind of when the, like I said, when the bar is low, it ends up being like, well, you're the winner of, I don't know what, but you won. And so I, I do think that's one of the things, I do love that we're having this reckoning because I do hope that people realize that there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of authors we don't talk about as being, you know, golden age sci-fi writers who were writing at the time, you know, who were writing um, stories that would squarely fit in this area and that we just ignored because there are like white dudes there standing right there. And but, so I, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm finish it. No, no, I'm good. I'm just on a rant now. Go ahead. <laughs> it's okay. I was going to say, I was going to say there's a, uh, I've seen a couple of really interesting proposals regarding um, the Retro Hugo Award, which for those who don't know, is an award that's mm. given um, at some uh, Hugo, uh, s some world science fiction conventions when, uh, when 50 years before there wasn't an award, or I think it can be certain numbers, like 50 or 75 or mm. something like that, there, there weren't awards given out. So sometimes that's because the award hadn't been invented yet or because it was interrupted by war. Um, but uh, the last couple have been, uh, and probably all of them, have been a, a bit fraught because uh, as a peer, a, as a group uh, voted award, it uh, sometimes goes to the most popular or the most well-known thing of that, of that time, um, which may be Lovecraft or, or Campbell or that sort of thing. When, when those names are still known, and, and there's a, there have been a couple of neat proposals for um, putting those in, in, instead or in addition, maybe, maybe uh, shining a light on what else there was at that time, whose voices didn't make it through. Um, and obviously, this is a panel about Bradbury, whose voice very much did make it through. <laughs> Um, so we, we can uh, come back uh, on topic, but, but mean, there are like, all these great uh, golden age writers whose names we don't remember, uh, and, and that's worth remembering. That's true. Um, so uh, let's see. I, I haven't seen any questions pop up, so I'm going to keep asking my questions. Um, I think I think we've sort of answered the one about critical reception, uh, but if anyone has anything that we didn't, I was, uh, I, I think critical reception is part of the conversation we're having. Um, uh, the the next thing is uh, the panel is called Ray Bradbury and the Future of Speculative Fiction. Uh, so I wa also wanted to ask, what do you see in the future of science fiction and fantasy that you're excited about? Um, and that can include also uh, writers you think who are carrying his legacy forward, if you want. I think the big thing that's happening right now is that we are hearing from science fiction writers in other parts of the world. You know, uh, there have been, I think, three um, Hugos went to two Chinese writers already. Um, oh, about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I was a columnist for Science Fiction World in Chengdu for a while. And they knew nothing about 
uh, I was explaining uh, Western science fiction culture. So I had one about the, um, the net, uh, about the Hugos. And I explained how it worked and I said, the first uh, Chinese Hugo's uh, winner could well be reading this article right now. So when, uh, uh, when, when Xi Xin Liu won, I went back and I looked up the date of the three-body problem, and he'd already written it as of the time that I wrote that column. Mm. I thought I was writing about the future, and I was writing about the past already. And there's science fiction being published in America now um, from all over Asia and from Africa, which is a really interesting development. Apparently, there's nobody in Africa can make a living as a science fiction writer, but there are a lot of people writing science fiction and good science fiction in Africa simply because they love the stuff. And I'll mention the, the there's a great magazine called Omenana, uh, which, which is uh, highlighting African and African diaspora works. Um, if anyone uh, is looking to, to read more of it. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I don't think you actually have to go far from home to find science fiction that's been ignored for, you know, years, and that's really great. I mean, like, you know, queer science fiction, I think, you know, marginalized voices, I mean, like, we, for a long time, you know, science fiction was written in, like, smaller circles, right, but it never made it to the mainstream. It was hard to break into the bigger mags, um, and, like, some, a lot of times, you know, it was hard to break into publishers, but I think, I think the, in the last, especially in the last few months, um, people have kind of stopped and looked at their reading lists and realized, like, why am I reading these same four authors? Like, what am I not reading? And I think that's really, really important to realize that the future can be interesting and exciting if there's lots of different kinds of people writing about it instead of the same three kind of people. And I think that's what I'm excited about. I'm hoping, you know, people see the humanity of what Ray Bradbury brought to fiction and they take that and they say, what does that say about me as a person in the world? And then write a story that reflects that. And I think, say, I think that's, that's really what kind of makes me excited about the future is to see what people come up with next. Because I don't want to, you know, I want to read about people who look like me, but I also want to read about people who don't look like me. Um, it's just there weren't a lot of people who looked like me ever in fiction before. So it's nice to see myself a little, a little bit. So yeah, I think, I think that's one of the things that's really exciting. I, th I do think it's... Um, it's painful for a lot of people. I think it's, it's hard for people to change and realize that maybe like their story is not the only story. But I think at the end, in the end, we'll all be better for it. I think in like 60 years, somebody will have a panel about, about this uh, and we'll be, they'll be like, well, it sucked right then, but then we got better stories. So. I, from the perspective of a librarian, it's been really interesting to see. And, and I, I'm maybe a, of a Seattle librarian. I don't know if that has to be added, but um, <laughs> it really has been impressive um, over the past couple of decades, um, just the broadening of both fantasy and science fiction in terms of its appeal. Um, there was a time when it felt pretty narrow. Um, that was a sort of, you know, as a librarian, you were sort of like, oh, okay, that's a science fiction reader. And you're sort of like, you know, off, way off to one side. And that, together with a number of other things, certainly in terms of the diversity of voices, international voices also, um, but, but, but science fiction and fantasy have become so uh, much a part of what people are reading. And I think 
part partly it had to do with this whole generation that kind of grew up together on Harry Potter, who is now sort of examining that. Um, and then part of it has to do with just the intense usefulness of futurism and dystopia right now. You know, we can sit here and wait for literary authors to write their, their COVID novels, or we can see that Sarah wrote one a couple of years ago and Mike Chen wrote one. And, you know, there's a bunch of them already out there that are perfectly of the moment. Um, and that's what Brad, you know, to bring it back to Bradbury, that's what he did too. When you read a book like Fahrenheit 451, it's sort of like you round a corner of current happenings and there he is waiting for you going, yep. <laughs> so that, that ability to latch on to the human core of these things, not the, not the technological details, but how we interact with them, which I think makes Bradbury right up there with kind of Black Mirror and contemporary writers as well, who are kind of focusing on us in, in this world. And I think that comes back into critical reception again, too, when you, when you think about people who are, there might've been a point where some of these books weren't allowed to be part of the academic conversation, part of the, you know, the other canon, the, you know, the more literary canon, we, we know that they, they mix back and forth, but there was a while where you couldn't say that. And now I know that like when I teach, my students have all come up on Harry Potter and, uh, you know, and, they, and they're open to, to this stuff too. They're open to all of it, but what they're not willing to do is, uh, you know, only, only write, only write realist fiction. And there's no reason to restrain them to that. Um, or to tell them that, that they'll be looked down on for it. That's a good point. Um, and I just want to highlight the question that was asked on the slide in case anyone isn't reading it, and probably some people aren't seeing it on, uh, on Facebook. It's, didn't Ray Bradbury say he didn't see himself as a sci-fi writer, more a fantasy writer? And, and Sam answered it in the chat with, uh, indeed, he said, Science fiction was the art of the possible. Fantasy was the art of the impossible. As such, he saw the majority of his work as implausible. Sam, if you want to add to that at all, feel free as well. Yeah, I, you know, he always joked. He told a story about uh, a book signing he did when a young 10-year-old boy came up or 11-year-old boy with a copy of the Martian Chronicles and said, Mr. Bradbury, this book, there's two moons on Mars and the mountains are blue and this isn't the way Mars is. And um, Bradbury said, no book signing for you. No book signing for you. Of course, he signed the book, but he laughed, you know. Um, and he, he was one of these rare writers who, you know, exploded in, in his artistic discovery during the golden era of science fiction in the late 30s and into the 40s and then the early 50s during this Campbell era of science fiction where technology was very important and Bradbury was as close to a Luddite as you'd ever discover. He never drove a car. He did not own a computer. He said his typewriter was his computer. Uh, he didn't fly until he was 62 years old. So technology wasn't really important to him. In fact, he would bristle at this uh, event we're having right now. He would say, you know, I think he would see it's importance in the era of COVID. You know, he was connected to the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. Uh, his brother passed away in 1918. Um, but he, he didn't like the internet and he didn't like, he thought people were wasting their time. Um, and so 
he looked at himself really, if anything, as a writer of, of implausible tales. You know, you, people are running around on Mars without helmets on and, you know, they're breathing air and that's not possible. So he said, if I, you must put a label on most of his work, it would be considered fantasy. He maintained till the end of his life that really the only true work of science fiction he ever produced was Fahrenheit 451, uh, saying that that could become possible, even though that in some ways was a satire, you know. Um, so he, he ultimately, if I can conclude, he really felt that genre labels, he didn't like them. Doubleday in the early 1950s wanted to put on a label on his book cover saying, you know, science fiction, double day science fiction. And he didn't want that. He didn't want to be labeled as anything. He wanted to be labeled as a storyteller and as a writer uh, who really was fearless in his exploration of genre. I mean, his first book is Gothic horror. And then he moves into uh, fantasy sci-fi with the Martian Chronicles and the Illustrated Man. And then he moves into realist contemporary prose that's mixed with some fantasy and the golden apples of the sun um, you know, Michael read from Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is a mainstay and classic of Gothic horror literature. He wrote mystery novels. He was just, uh, he did not want to be boxed in by, by any sort of labeling uh, as, a, as any kind of writer. He wanted to write the stories he just wanted to write. Uh, and I think that's a lesson for all of us. Um, you know, we see so many writers today and artists in, mu in music um, who are, are sort of defying genre categories and hybrid forms. I'm also a professor, um, Sarah, as you are, and hybrid forms are what all my students want to write. They want to cross genre and explore and mash things up. And Bradbury's been doing that for 70, 80 years. I, oh, I think Mike's trying to talk. Michael, you're muted again. Justine, I think you had something to say as well. Oh, good. I, I do want to say, he might not have approved of computers, but ah. if he, the 22-year-old could have seen this. Yeah. I think he would run for the, for the typewriter right away, but he would have improved it. Like one of us went in from Nairobi and one from Rio de Janeiro. Agreed. You can, you can imagine exactly how he would have treated this. Yeah. This, and, and really, his strength was as a visionary. Yeah. Which he had under control, but it was the visionary. Agreed. I think it's funny that he didn't want to be called this or that because the first thing you learn as a writer is that books aren't for you, they're for readers. And so really how you define the book, it doesn't really matter because it's how a reader defines it. Um, because that's really the most important part is how a reader responds to the, that text. So if a reader picks up my book and they're like, it's science fiction, I'm like, cool, it's science fiction. And if a reader picks up my book and they're like, it's horror, I'm like, now it's horror. <laughs> I think that's the best thing about writing a, a story that can be flexible between genre is let the, re let the reader define what it is. Um, for me, Bradbury has always been science fiction because he, he's missing some of the essential elements I consider for fantasists. Um, and a lot of it's the world building that's just not really, it's not fantasy world building. It's always kind of built on that, that hard sci-fi, um, even if he didn't like science. Um, that, and I think now if he were still publishing, it would definitely be science fiction because we've gotten a little less like hard sci-fi in a lot of our science fiction. We're a little more, we're more and more willing to let the science fall by the wayside if the story's good. And so, yeah. So I do think it's always funny when people are like, this author wanted to be, is this, they're this kind of, and even when I meet those authors, I'm like, that's, that's sweet. 
bless your heart, as they say in the South. <laughs> well, I think we actually have to bring this towards the last question. Um, so the last thing I want to ask you is, can you talk a little about what you're working on right now or what you uh, are, have coming out in the near future or what you've just released? Any of the above. Um, we can, we can go in either direction. I'll go first. We'll go. Okay. Um, my most recent book to come out was Zeppelin's Divide. It was the sequel to Dread Nation, which posits what happens when the Battle of Gettysburg ends in the zombie apocalypse and takes place 17 years. So during what would have been re reconstruction in a normal historical timeline. Um, and the next thing I have coming out is based is a Star Wars book. Um, a Test of Courage, which is a kid's book that takes place during a Star Wars published initiative called The High Republic. So it's all brand new Star Wars stories, not linked to movies or TV or anything like that. Wow. Very cool. And Very cool. Your, your zombie stories are the only ones that I can, I, I can read yours and Sherry Priest. And that, that's the only zombies I can read. So. Okay. I have uh, a book coming out on the 25th called City Under the Stars. And this was co-written with Gardner Dozois, who's best remembered for his 19 years at, um, at Isaac Asimov Science Fiction Magazine as the editor, like 36 years of the Best of the Year anthology. Um, he was probably the most important editor of our times, but he was a much better writer than he was an editor. And he had a novel that he began almost 50 years ago. And after about 20 or 25 years, he decided of uh, being stuck on it on the beginning. He decided he wasn't going to do anything, handed over to me and said, turn into a novella. And we did together, published it. More years went by and we decided to turn it into a novel. And we were about halfway through that project when he died. Wow. So Gardner was a very, very, very depressing writer. His, his stuff was very dark, and this novel is darker than, your, than most Gardner Dozois, but it had a happy ending, which he had talked about often. And if you read the opening of the story, you know, it begins, you watch in the first few pages, you can see a man's life destroyed before your eyes, and then things get worse for him, and then they get worse, and that's a pattern that we basically follow through the novel. So after the first five pages, you're not going to believe it's possible to have an earned happy ending. But by God, it has one. I wrote it down just the way he described it. And I want everybody to know, Garden Dossois died on an up note with a happy ending. <laughs> I'm not a writer, so I'll just jump in. Um, I, uh, this uh, Saturday, I'm participating in the Ray Bradbury Readathon, um, which will be broadcast all kinds of different places. Just Google it. Um, it's going to be really interesting because there are lots and lots of librarians and celebrities and all kinds of you know, writers, great folks uh, participating. I won't even try and list them all, although I do read the penultimate section at, before handing off to William Shatner. So that, that's kind of cool. Um, I also podcast our story time uh, from the library. It's called Thrilling Tales, a story time for grownups. Um, this August, every Monday in August, I was going to be reading Bradbury stories to people in our auditorium every noon, every evening, and it's not happening. Um, so I'm reading them into a microphone in my base. Not, I'm not reading Bradbury stories, actually. I'm reading public domain stories, curious ones, including some with pandemic tie-ins from the public domain, like The Scarlet Plague, um, things like that. 
so check it out. And you've already shown us you're a great reader. So. Wow. Uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, have a brand new book of short stories out. I've got a copy of it right here. Um, it's called Dark Black, and it's 20 short stories very much hailing from sort of the Gothic tradition. I'm a huge sort of um, proponent of the idea that you don't need a ghost to be haunted. Um, and that we're all haunted by, by our past and by our pain. And, and so there's, it's kind of a blending of genres in it, if you will. Um, and it's very much a nod to Bradbury's first book that I mentioned earlier, Dark Carnival. In fact, uh, I asked the publisher if they would print it in the exact same typeset. It's printed in Garamond, uh, which his book in 1947 was printed in. But it's also very modern. It's, it's punk rock and it's political and... Um, you can get it right now. It won't be available widely in bookstores until September 22nd. But if you go to hattonbeard.com, you can get signed copies. In fact, uh, it's illustrated. That was super important to me. Bradbury always had his short story collections very often illustrated. And so here's a, here's a photo. Uh, there's a story about Ray Bradbury in there. And there he is. Um, that's Bradbury, obviously, with a lot of his metaphors, as he would call them. Um, and so you can get that at hattonbeard.com. Um, and then I'm starting a nonfiction book about um, Aleister Crowley living on Loch Ness um, for the first half of the 20th century and, and the occult and monsters, not sea monsters, lock monsters. And, and so my hope is that I can craft a uh, nonfiction book that is sort of Eric Larson-esque, Devil in the White City, but with the occult and with the Loch Ness Monster and Satanism. Uh, and we'll see how that goes. I'm just starting the research process. But now, of course, I can't travel because of COVID. So, um, you know, the, it's creating all sorts of complexities with trying to travel the world and do research when you can't really go anywhere. Um, but cool. but uh, thank you, guys. This has been a massively inspiring discussion uh, and i'm honored to be with this group of folks tonight yeah, really this great is, this was terrific uh, yeah and i'll say uh i have a novelette at tor.com right now called two truths and a lie and um and my next book isn't until next may but it's called we are satellites and it's out on uh it's available for pre-order now even though the cover hasn't been released yet uh, thank you so much, everybody. This was a fantastic discussion. Uh, I'm running out of light, which is a good indication that it must be uh, just about time to end. Um, I forgot to turn on the overhead. So, thank you, Sarah. Um, yeah, I'm going to step in. This is Shailene again, representing the library, and I just want to thank you all. This has been a fantastic evening. I love, love, love to the, your readings from Bradbury. And this conversation has really been fascinating and given me a lot to think about. So thank you so much. Um, thank you everyone who tuned in. Um, and um, I'm just gonna say good night. <laughs> so everyone take care. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.